Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new or visitors, if you're a guest here, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. And we are glad that you're uh, with us. Whether uh, you have been attending here, you've been a member here since the very beginning, or you're passing through town, or, or maybe you've, uh, this is your first time ever being in church, regardless of where you come or what you bring with you, uh, you are welcome here. We are glad that you are with us as we come and we sing and pray and sit under God's Word. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a portion of God's Word that comes from John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to John 1, or you can follow along in your order of service. And we are looking at John's prologue, uh, the first 18 verses of John 1 during this Advent season. So if you recall from the previous weeks, the uh, this season that we are in, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, historically the church has acknowledged to be the season of Advent. This is a season of waiting, of preparation to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It culminates in Christmas Day when we remember uh, Christ's birth. And so often uh, churches have focused their attention on different passages that, that help orient us towards Jesus' coming. And so we're looking at John's first 18 verses. And we heard a few weeks ago how Jesus is the divine word. That he was in the beginning with God, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And last week we heard that the word became light. He shone his light into this world, into the darkness of the world, but also the darkness of our own hearts. And this morning we're going to see that this word, this light, is the one who now gives new birth. And so if you would, please follow along, beginning in verse 9 of John 1. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the works of Flannery O'Connor. Uh, she has written a number of different uh, short stories, a number of pieces of literature. Her most famous probably, is that short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. You remember uh, this story. It centers around this family who are driving somewhere through the south. I, I can't remember where. Maybe O'Connor doesn't actually tell us what state they're driving through, but they're driving through this, uh, this uh, part of the south where they are in the middle of nowhere, and as they're driving along, their car breaks down, and it, it slides off into a ditch by the side of the road. This is before cell phones, and so they're stranded. They're left on their own. They're just left hoping that a driver, another car, will pass by and stop and give them aid and give them assistance. So grandma and mom and dad and the kids, they're sitting there waiting, and after a little while of waiting, sure enough, a car drives up, and it stops, and it gets out, and there are three men that get out of the car. One of the men goes over and looks at the broken down car and he looks to his friends and says, it'll take about an hour for us to fix it. They, they continue to talk to grandma and to mom and to dad. And after a little while, they realize, grandma does, who it is that they're talking to. You see, one of these three men is the misfit. 
You remember, that's what he's called, the misfit. The misfit is one who has just escaped from prison. Now he's on the run. It becomes clear that they're wanting to take this car, fix it, and continue on their way. But in order for them to do that, they're going to have to do something with this family. And so the misfit's friends take the, the family, the, the father, the children, off into the woods, and now it's just the misfit and grandma left talking. And grandma knows where this is going, what direction this is heading in, and so she tries to appeal to the misfit's better nature. She says things like, you're a good man, you're not really bad, you're not a bit common. But this isn't going to work for the misfit. He knows himself all too well. He says, I ain't a good man. Well, her, her first strategy failed, and so she starts to now, instead of appealing to his better nature, she appeals to religion. She says, well, are you a praying man? And she starts invoking Jesus' name. There's a scene where she just repeats Jesus' name over and over again, and after a little while, the misfit says, Jesus thrown everything off balance. Jesus was the only one who ever raised the dead. He thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to do but enjoy the few minutes you got left the best way you can. Do you hear what the misfit said? The misfit basically said, if Jesus is who he says he is, if he did the things that the Bible says he did, then in one way or another, you, you have an option to make. You, you have a response that you're going to have to make. He has a claim over your life, and you're going to have to make a decision. You are either going to throw off everything and follow him, or you are going to reject him and go your own way. It's Christology by way of the misfit. <laughs> and he's right. He's right. Those are the only two options we have. That there is no middle ground, that we will either give up everything and follow him or we will turn away and go our own way. That's it. There's no middle ground. Now, some of us don't like that. <laughs> some of us don't like that, that our options are either follow or reject. We, we like nuance. We don't like it when options are laid out that starkly. We like nuance. It doesn't sit well with us, either ors. We like nuance, especially when it's in regards to circumstances that are of this significance, right? And we, we, we want to live in gray. We don't want to be either or. We want to be also and. We don't like living in the midst of gray. And so we try to find a third way so that we don't have to live within a dichotomy like the the misfit presents for us. But the truth is, is that when it comes to Christ, you're not given gray. It's either light or dark. It's either follow or reject. Those are the only two options. There is no nuance when it comes to Christ. You either will put aside everything and follow him, or you will turn your back on him and go another way. There is no middle ground. See, you either receive him fully or not at all. The misfit is right. Because what the misfit is describing is exactly what our passage is describing. 
You see, the divine word, Jesus, he comes into the world and his coming necessitates a response. We can try to nuance it, but ultimately all that we are left with is that we can either reject him or we can receive him. And that's what our passage tells us. Our passage begins with the former. You see, as Jesus comes into the world, instead of receiving him, many reject him. We see it in verses 9 through 10 of our passage. Follow along there. It says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. You hear that? Jesus is rejected by the world. The creator of the world doesn't stand outside of the world. That's what we were told in previous passages. Jesus created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain, and he holds them together by his power. But he doesn't stand afar from the world. He actually enters into it like a writer, an author, writing themselves into their story, or a painter painting himself into his masterpiece. Jesus, the creator of the world, enters into his world. And how does the world respond? Verse 9. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world and the world did not know him. Now that phrase enlightens everyone, that, that might trip us up a little bit. I mean, what does that mean? What does John mean enlightens everyone? Because that sounds like maybe Jesus is inwardly illuminating every heart so that everyone would believe we know that there are some who want to articulate that way, that that really doesn't matter what you believe. As long as you have sincerity of heart, you acknowledge, oh yeah, Jesus is the light, he came into the world, but, but it really has no effect over your, your life. You don't acknowledge that he is the Lord, but you're a good person. It, it really doesn't matter. In fact, a few years ago, there was a book that was written. It was directed at Christians and it said that God's love is so powerful, it is so great, that it will win over every heart. Maybe some of you read this book. In this book, what they articulate was even those who reject Jesus, even at their death, after their death, God's love would be revealed to them in such a way that they will be received into God's presence. Did anyone read this book by any chance? I'm the only one. I promise people did. It was called Love Wins. And that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds pretty sweet. Love wins. Is that what this is talking about? The, the light that enlightens every heart, that enlightens man, that shines on man? Is that what it means, that every heart is enlightened, is illuminated in that sort of a way? Well, the truth is, if love wins in that way, then orthodoxy loses. <laughs> because that's actually not what we see in this passage. It's not that everyone is ushered into God's kingdom. In fact, in a minute, we're going to see that there are those who reject the light. That's what verse 10 tells us. That the world did not know him. It rejected the light. So what does that mean, enlightens everyone? Well, the New Testament theologian D.A. Carson helps us. He says that enlightens everyone is speaking of an objective revelation. The light that comes into the world with the incarnation of the word, the invasion of the true light, it shines on every man and divides the race, those who hate the light and those that receive it. You see, the light shines, it shines into the world, it shines on every man, but it does so in order to divide between those who receive the light and those who reject the light. And that's what verse 10 tells us. 
He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. The world didn't recognize him. This is kind of like White House advisor Valerie Jarrett. In 2015, uh, this advisor was at a Washington dinner. She's sitting there at her table. It's before the program started. There's milling around. There's people talking. They're drinking. They're waiting for their food to come to their tables. And as she's talking, a man comes up behind her, and she just casually looks out the corner of her eyes. She sees the stripe on his pants and knows this is the waiter. And so she takes her glass, her empty wine glass, and asks, can you please refill this? She doesn't look up. She doesn't look at the man's face. The man takes the glass and walks away. And Valerie continues in her conversation. A few minutes later, the man returns with a full glass of of red and places it right in front of her. And now, instead of asking the rest of the table, is there anything I can do for you? You know, fill that bread bowl. Do you need a clean knife, sir? Any more wine for anyone? No. Instead, what he does is he goes and sits at the table. Now, Valerie Jarrett's not looking out of the corner of her eye anymore because waiters don't sit at the table at these sorts of dinners. They go and they serve other tables, and she looks up and she looks in his face. She's not looking at the stripe on his pants anymore. She looks at his face and she realizes who it was that she was talking to. You see, this was the four-star general, Peter Chiarelli. And at the time, in 2015, he was the second highest-ranking official in the United States Army. I mean, talk about mistaken identity, right? (laughs) She had no idea whose presence she was in. And that's what the world did to Christ. The light shone into the world. The divine word came into the world, and the world did not recognize him. But this is even more significant than a case of mistaken identity. I mean, think about the creator of the world. Jesus, when he came into the world, he could look at his people. He could look at all of his people, and he could look and say with complete sincerity and truthfulness, that earth you're standing on, I made that. The air that's filling your lungs to keep you alive, that was my idea. The sun that is warming your face, I hung it in the sky, and the water that cools your lips, it's a reflection of my care. He could look at the whole world and say, with complete truthfulness, I made it and I made you. And yet, though the entire creation and every human being was created by his word, the world went deaf to that word. But it gets worse. It's not only that Jesus isn't recognized by the world, he's disregarded by his people. He's rejected by his people as well. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, every single commentator, every single theologian I consulted is in 100% agreement that the people here is speaking of the Jewish people. And think about who they were. They were the ones who were given the promises. Abraham was given the promise that that one would come from him, a seed from the line of Abraham, who would bring, bring blessing not just to Israel, but to the nations. That there was a promise made to David that a son of David would come, a line of that kingly line that would reign on God's throne forever. Even in this Advent season, those prophecies that we've been reading, 
They were given to the people of Israel. They were the ones who had been told what to look for and they had heard what, they, what would come. But when he came, they didn't believe. They rejected him and turned away. Even those who were close to him, remember his family, they didn't understand who he was. Right? When Mary and Joseph, they, they walked away and they couldn't find Jesus and they weren't sure where he was, so they went back to the temple and there he is at the temple in Luke. And what did he say? Why were you looking for me? I had to be at my father's house. And they were perplexed. They didn't know what to make of this. And his disciples later on, they would say to him countless times, are you now going to establish the kingdom? Throw off Rome and bring about the kingship again. They were confused. They didn't understand. His disciples, his family, the Pharisees, they called him a heretic. And the Sadducees debated him and the priests called him a blasphemer and the crowd called for his crucifixion. Again and again and again. He came into the world and the world didn't know him. He came to his people and they rejected him. And this rejecting of Christ is the most mutinous act that has ever been perpetrated by anyone in human history. Because think about who it is that they're rejecting. The very breath that Christ gave them is used to speak words against him. The hearts that beat by his sustaining power are given to other loves. The one who created the heavens and the earth and all that they contain is rejected by the ones that he graciously created. It's not just the world when he came and not just the Old Testament people who had the promises but left to ourselves in our sin. We too would reject him. We'd reject him and be without hope. That's actually our first membership vow. We've been going through the membership vows in the new members class. The first membership vow. Do you believe yourself a sinner and justly deserving God's, pleasure, God's displeasure? Justly deserving his judgment and apart from God's grace without hope. That's who we are. That those who deny him and reject him, who never turn to him, Jesus will say at the last day, away from my presence, for I never knew you. But friends, there's another side to the coin. See, there's two responses. There are two options for us. There's one of rejection. But the other side of the coin is reception. See, that's what we see in verse 12. We see reception, we see receiving in verse 12, but, just as a side note, can, can I just say that, that the buts in the Bible have to be some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture? I mean, think about that. Think about that. The world did not know him, his own people rejected him, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Do you hear what Christ gives? The right to become the children of God. We love our rights in this country, right? The right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion and assembly and all those other rights. But there is a right that is so great that there is no nation and no person who can give it to us. There is a right that is greater than all those other rights and is the right to become the children of God and is only God who can give it to us. And through Christ, he does. The right to become the children of God. 
Now, maybe some of you are sitting there thinking, but Penny, isn't everyone God's child? I mean, is, isn't everyone God's child? Like, it doesn't, doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, right? Black and yellow, red and white, they're all precious in his sight. Well, we can apply that in, in an appropriate way. But it would be easy for us to think, well, ev- everybody's just the children of God. Well, no. <laughs> See, it's true that everyone is part of God's creation. But the Bible is clear that only those who are trusting in Christ are God's children. Only those who are part of God's household, his family, those are reserved only for those who have put their faith in Christ. I mean, think about the end of verse 12. It says, become the children of God. That word become indicates that there is a change of status, that once we weren't the children of God. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're told that because of our sin, we were by nature children of wrath and deserving of God's judgment. But children of wrath isn't the end of the story. Christ has happened He has changed us. He took those who were children of wrath, those who were enemies of God, and he made us the children of God. He gave us the right to call him our Savior, our brother. He calls those who were enemies to God, who had rejected him, who went in active rebellion against him, and he says, you can now call him Father. He makes us the children of God. This is the work of God and God alone. That's what we see in verse 13. That we have the right to become the children of God. Verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Did you hear that? It's not because of your pedigree. It's not because of your family line. That's what the Jewish people thought. Remembering John 8, they came to Jesus and said, Abraham's our father. They went to him and they said, well, we're in the right line. We're trusting in our family line, but this new status, it's not by blood. It's not by the decision of man, not by the will of the flesh. It's not by your resolve or strength or understanding. Not by the will of man. No, those who are the children of God are so because we have been born of God. God makes us his children. That's what the end of verse 13 says, and that's what John 3 tells us. You remember in John 3, Jesus has been doing all these miracles. He's changed water into wine. He's teaching. He's calling disciples to himself. And at night in John 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus comes to him. And he comes to him at night, and he's got a question for Jesus. And and he comes at night maybe because he doesn't want anyone to know what he's asking. Maybe because he just wants a, an, an audience, just him and Jesus. He wants some one-on-one time with the Savior of the world. And he comes and he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And what does Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, we must be born of God to be his children. Now, now y'all are pretty savvy people, so, so you might be sitting there thinking, okay, okay, we need to be born again. God needs to uh, work in our hearts. He needs to make us his children. 
But just a minute ago, Penny, you said, and the scriptures said, we have to receive him. So which is it? Do we receive him? I mean, that, that seems like a choice. That seems like a conscious decision that we make, right? We're choosing Jesus as opposed to rejecting him. But, but then our regeneration, our justification is by God alone. So which is it? <laughs> yes, right? <laughs> this is where we need some nuance. <laughs> no, but our theology tells us that we were children of wrath, that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but because we are dead people, we cannot make ourselves alive again. Right? We can't enter into our mother's womb and be born again. God can't, we can't breathe life into ourselves to be born again. It is the work of God and God alone. But our choosing of him, our receiving of him, is our response to God's working in our heart. See, as one pastor put it, receiving, choosing, in Reformed theology is not a bad word. (laughs) You just have to remember where it falls out. You see, God makes us his children. He enlivens our hearts. He enables us to receive Christ. Now, that might happen in a moment, so we can't even distinguish when one happened and the other, and yet one must precede the other. We cannot receive him unless he has made us his child. And that's what God has done. We don't contribute to our new birth, and yet we receive him as those who have that new birth. We're the children of God, not because of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but because of God and God alone. And so you know what this means? It means that if you've experienced new birth, it means if you have received Christ, it means that if you are a child of God, then we are called not just to take on that name, to take on that new identity, but we are called to live as those children. This means that there is nothing that God can't ask of you. It it means that because he has taken us from death to life, from light, from darkness into light, that because we are not the children of wrath, but we are now his children, that we belong to him. That we are his. We belong to him. The Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. It's a beautiful question and answer. Sometimes we use it as a profession of faith. It asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And we answer that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it goes on, but I am not my own, but I belong to another. I'm not my own. That means that every thought, every word, every action, every inclination of our heart, every possession my home, my car, my clothes, my children, they are not my own. They are his. Every part of me, not just the hour or so that I'm here this morning, not just when we are reading our Bibles, not just when we're in prayer, not just when we're sharing the gospel, but every part of us is not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not my own. Now, that can be a terrifying thought. 
Right? I mean, that can be a terrifying thought. I'm not my own, but I belong to another. And it would be, except for the fact that the one that we belong to is the God who has brought us from death to life. It would be a horrifying thought, except for the fact that the one that we belong to is the God who took children of wrath and made us children of God. It would be a horrifying, terrifying Incredible, fear-inducing thought if it weren't such a great privilege. Because that's what it is. It is a privilege to be called a child of the king. To be called a son and daughter of the father. To be called a brother or sister of Christ. And that's who you are. If you are trusting in Christ, that's who you are. You see, O'Connor's misfit was right. Friends, if Christ did what he said he did, and he did, and if he is who he says he is, and he is, then it's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. That is our privilege. That is our right to be the children of God, to follow the one who, as the hymn says, as we will sing in a week's time, who lays his glory by. It is a privilege to follow the one who is born that man no more may die, who has raised the sons of earth. It is a privilege to receive and follow and belong as children of God to the one who is given, who is born to give us second birth. Friends, that is our great privilege, to receive the one who has made us his children. And so today, and all our days, we receive him and we call on his name and we put aside everything and follow him. Let us pray. Our God and our King, we do thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for your glory and mercy. We thank you that you sent our Lord Jesus to be born to give us second birth. And so we pray that we would now live out that birth, that we would live as your children, your people, that our words would reflect you, our thoughts and our mind would reflect you, that our actions would point to the new life that we have in Christ. Thank you for your grace and mercy, and we pray in the powerful name, the gracious name of our God and King. And all God's people said together, Amen.